Well, good morning. I'm not used to our new bumper video yet. I don't have the sounds memorized to know when they're going to end. And so it always catches me off guard for this one. But we are in this series that we are calling Winsome Living. So glad to have Pastor Tom out here last week as he launched us into this series. We are looking at the book of Daniel. And this, this book takes place at this time where God's people, the Jewish people, have been conquered and they are in exile in the land of Babylon. And we are spending time in this book because we do see some similarities between our situation and the situation that was going on at the time of Daniel. Maybe we haven't been conquered and carted off to a foreign nation, but we do find ourselves in the midst of a culture where we have a pull to turn away from from God and towards other things, where there is a temptation to live for anything or other things than God. And by culture, I'm talking about everything that surrounds us. This is beliefs and arts and ideas and, and, uh, and imaginations and, and what we value and, and the things that we hold on to. This culture surrounds us and there is a pull within that to place a higher emphasis on other things and to tor- turn towards other things than the God of the Bible. Now, as we look at culture, there's two main reactions, two main responses that people have to culture. There's two different uh, reactions that that we're going to focus on. One is assimilation. That is just do what everyone around you is doing. And and there's something appealing to this. We don't want to stick out. We don't want to look weird. Uh, There's also an aspect where this is kind of what we do by default. The more that we spend time around people, the more we start to look and act and think and talk like those of us around us. You need to look no further than your home, parents, as you start to see your characteristics show up in your kids. The same is true for us. We start to look like the culture around us. The hard part with assimilation is we lose our distinctive identity that's given to us. Especially as Christians, we lose the unique way that God has called us to live. So we have problems with assimilation. The other uh, main response is separation that we just cut ourselves off entirely from the culture around us. Now, there's two issues here. One is it's never really as effective as it should be. It's never really as as thorough of a cutting off as we think it is. We're still influenced by the culture around us every time we watch something on TV or we go on the internet or uh, we, we talk to our neighbors or we start to compare what we have to what our neighbors have. Influence starts to seep in. Even if we avoid all of those, if we just stick in circles of people who look and think and act just like us, we're still influenced by the culture that we're in. You all got to this church in some way or another, and as you did so, you saw what our community values by the buildings that are being built, by the adverts on your way in. Each one of those are training us over time into what do we value because we are building those things here. What do we think are problems because we're trying to find out solutions to those in our society. We are influenced by the culture that we're in no matter how much we try to separate ourselves. The other problem with separation is we might start to get the idea that, you know, if we just had control, then we can truly make things that are good. If we can just create our own community, then then things would go really well in that situation. The problem is that's never how it's worked with humanity. 
Uh, you see it in the founding of America with the Puritans coming over here, uh, which is what I wrote my thesis on. And if I can toot my own horn for a second, the fact that I have been uh, able to, to resist inserting my thesis into messages has been admirable. Because if you talk to someone who's written a thesis, they will let you know very quickly that they have written one. So anyways, in my thesis... Uh, <coughs> So the Puritans came to America with this grand idea of being the city on a hill, that the other nations would look to them and become more and more like them. 32 years later, they were scrambling because they realized that not only were other nations not becoming like them, their own kids weren't following Jesus. So they had this grand plan to create this perfect Christian culture, and they were actually not pointing people closer to following Jesus let alone some of the horrific thoughts that they had, such as not following God's placing of dignity on all people, regardless of the color of their skin. So even as Christians were trying to create this perfect utopia, we see a culture is created that is pulling people away from following God. I, I bring all this up because I, my fear in talking about uh, how we respond to culture is we can create this, you know, it's us versus them. We got, th we got everything figured out in this room, but once we leave this place, we're, we're around this horrible, just uh, terrible place. There's a lot of good in our culture. But any time that we have humans involved in something, which culture comes from humans being involved, there is the aspect and temptation and pull away from God. And, and so rather than the series being a, a focus of us versus them, it, it's really a conversation of us versus us. And so in these moments, we have this pull to respond to culture by either assimilation or separation. I'm so grateful that God has given us a third way that God has shown to us how we are to live regardless of the culture that we find ourselves in. This is the teaching that was given to the Jewish people while they were taken into exile. At the same time of Daniel, there was another prophet, a man named Jeremiah. And this was the teaching that he gave, uh, that God spoke through him to God's people. This is Jeremiah 29, starting in verse 4. It says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile, so God's in control of this situation, from Jerusalem to Babylon. Here's what he tells them to do. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and, and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters to marriage so that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. Verse seven, but seek the welfare of the city where I've sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. And in its welfare, you will find your welfare. Isaac, I lied to you, I'm not gonna do verse eight. Uh, it, it talks about how people might be saying uh, to not do what God is doing, or God's gonna rescue you from exile right now. No, God is saying while you were in this culture, it's not, uh, rather than any other way, this is how you're called to live. And even in that passage, you see the ideas of assimilation or separation broken down. God gives the direction to increase, to multiply, do not decrease. How can you do that if you don't know who you are, if you don't know who the Jewish people are? So it's this idea to keep your identity, to, to maintain that even in this other nation. So don't assimilate. It also says to build houses, to seek the welfare of the city, to pray for the welfare of the city. So it's saying don't separate. And so we have these, these two pieces in there of how we are to live, this tension of what we are to do. Maintain your identity, but be 
deeply invested in the welfare of your city. Uh, know who you are, but also care for where you are. It's this interesting uh, dynamic to, to hold to, and it, and it sounds like it's a, a hard middle ground to walk through. We very easily err to either side of assimilation or separation. It, it sounds almost impossible. How do we know that we are maintaining the balance between the two of these? Well, this is where I'm grateful for the book of Daniel, which not only shows us how to live, but how we are able to live in this way. We have Daniel and his companions' example of living in this third way, and we see the reminder that God is working through his people, enabling to do this, that uh, amongst all the impossibilities that Daniel faces, no, uh, none of them are greater than the fact that he is maintaining this third way. And we see over and over again in the book of Daniel that he is God of the impossible. Well, we are in Daniel chapter 2 today. That's where we'll be spending the, the rest of our time. And Daniel 2 is one whole narrative unit. And so we are going to try to cover all of Daniel 2 in just today, uh, which uh, makes sense why I just spent the last seven or so minutes on an introduction before we even get into Daniel chapter 2, because I'm great at time management. Uh, but uh, in Daniel chapter 2, there's, there's kind of five movements to the story. And so I'll, I'll be doing a, a lot of summarizing work. Hopefully you've read it in advance, or you'll read it afterwards. Hold me accountable. Uh, let's make sure that this is what the Bible's saying. But for time's sake, I'll, I'll be summarizing a lot of this story. So it all kicks off with this dream that the king of Babylon has, a man named Nebuchadnezzar. And in the first section, in the first 13 verses, uh, we hear about this dream and destruction that's promised. Nebuchadnezzar has this horrifying dream. He's really shaken to the core, and he needs to know what does it mean. It seems important. Some message is being told to me in this time. I need to know what it means. And so Dan, uh, Nebuchadnezzar calls all of the people that, that might be able to tell him. He calls the magicians and the enchanters and sorcerers and the Chaldeans. They are all brought forward, and he says, uh, tell me what this dream means. No problem, they all say confidently. But Nebuchadnezzar is a clever enough man how will he know that their interpretation is right? I mean, it says that his, his soul is, is worried, that, that he's feeling so much pressure. He cannot get this wrong. He has to know that the interpretation that's given to him is right. And so he says, he gives him a little bit of a test. He says, first, tell me what the dream was. Tell me what happens in the dream. Then I will know that I can trust your interpretation. Oh, and if you don't do it, I'll rip off all your limbs and destroy your houses. Uh, it's, it's, maybe I should have been a little bit more hesitant to compliment Nebuchadnezzar just a couple of minutes ago. It's this hor horrible threat that's given. And the, the wise men who are brought before him know that this is impossible. No one can do that. This is what we read in Daniel 2, verse 11. They say, the thing that the king asks is difficult. No one can show it to the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with flesh. Not to ruin the drama of the story, but this is what we call foreshadowing. So he has this horrible dream. He calls for the, the dream to be told to him. That's how he will trust the interpretation. And he's told that this cannot happen. Well, he doesn't back down. He doesn't think, oh, my bad, I, I shouldn't have pushed that far. No, he goes through with what he threatened to do. He issues a death sentence to all who fit into that category of wise men, which we are told includes Daniel, 
and Hananiah and Azariah and Mishael, those faithful Jewish teenagers that we read about in chapter one. They weren't present at this time where, where uh, the king was disappointed and let down in this way. They weren't present when this death threat was issued, but they were still included into it. Which gets us into the next movement of the story, the request, Daniel's request and revelation, which occurs over verses 14 through 23. Daniel hears that this death threat has been issued, that he and his companions are included in it, and so he asks his his executor, the guy who's come to kill him, what's going on, and he's told the story. He asks for time with the king, you know, the guy who wants to kill him, for a little bit more time so he can come up with an interpretation. And incredibly, he is granted that. And Daniel uses his time well, unlike I do in my time up here. But he uses his time well. He, he's, he prays to God constantly. He calls for Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael to join him in praying. That night, in, in, while he's sleeping, he's told what the dream is and its interpretation. And immediately on waking up, he spends his time praising God in verses uh, 20 through 23, I think is what it is. It's this beautiful song of praise to God in response to all this. Now, this isn't the main point of our passage, so you can have this one for free. I I, I think we see a little bit of a pattern that we might be able to follow in in those moments that we come up against what seems like an impossible ask of us. In in those moments when we feel lost and confused, what are we supposed to do? In, In those hardships that we go through in life, we see Daniel faced with death. How does he respond in that moment? Well, he prays constantly, fervently praying to God, turning to him, saying what we just saying, Lord, I need you, and turning to that God. He also doesn't go alone. He invites those who know him to join him in praying, to join him, to be present with him. And then in response to all of this, we see throughout this entire time, he is constantly praising God, Uh, We see that most thoroughly with the resolution, but all throughout this, he is praising God. God is constantly at work, and so we constantly respond to him. So in these moments, maybe that's a pattern for us to follow as well. Prayer, people, praise. We see Daniel do that in this time. All right, back to the text. He's now equipped. He was told what the dream is and what the interpretation of the dream is. And so we get to the third section of the story that that I'm calling uh, Reveals and Made Known. It's coming from verses 24 and 30. Reveals and Made Known. And this is the wording of the text that we have. We have this exchange between Nebuchadnezzar and Daniel where where, uh, the king says to him, are you able to do what I said? Can you tell me what the dream is? Can you give me the interpretation? And Daniel stands before him and he says, nope, no one could do that. Not a, not a great start with his life on the line right here. But then we get this beautiful verse that I, it, it's basically structuring all of my thoughts about this chapter. We get this beautiful verse in, in uh, chapter two, verse 28. It says, no one can do what you asked, but there is a God in heaven. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. And he has made known, reveals and made known, to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. Your dream and the visions uh, of your head as you lay before the better these. And then he goes on to tell them what the dream was. There is a God in heaven. 
I think it's so remarkable that with his life on the line, Daniel's words out of his mouth are, are not just, yeah, I could tell you what it was, which is the simple answer, right? He, he does know what the dream and interpretation are. He could easily just tell them, and, and he might get honor and praise in that moment, but he doesn't do that. He, with his life on the line, turns and prays to God. There is a God in heaven, and he alone can reveal this. He alone can make this known. You have this this question, this concern, you're told about this impossible task. Well, there is a God in heaven who can do this. I think about for our lives, as we are faced with, with all that this life might pull us towards, with all might, uh, that f- uh, might feel so impossible, like this task that no person can do, we have that reminder as well. But there is a God in heaven. How do we navigate between assimilation and separation in a culture where we feel a pull to turn away from God? Well, there is a God in heaven. How do we know what direction we're supposed to go in life? Well, there is a God in heaven. How, how do we find a hope or something lasting, some sort of purpose, something fulfilling in this life? Well, there is a God in heaven. We get to... Uh, because of that truth, because there is a God in heaven, Daniel is equipped with what the dream is and what the interpretation is. And he's able to give that to this king. He gives him this interpretation that is certain and sure. This is the, the longest section of the chapter. This is verses 31 through 45. And we're told first about what this dream entails that, that it's this dream of a statue made out of various materials and, and metals. It, it starts with a head of gold, and then it moves to uh, a chest and arms of silver, uh, a middle and thighs of bronze, legs of iron with feet of both iron and clay. As Daniel's revealing what this is, he, he talks about how these are different nations, different kingdoms, uh, I mean, uh, different kingdoms uh, following one after another but he gets to the climax of the vision where he says that this rock, not made by human hands, we're told that detail twice, that should make us think, this is very important. So it's telling us that God himself will topple all of these kingdoms. Not not just so that they fall down, but they will be so destroyed, not even the dust of them shall remain, and in their place, God himself will establish a kingdom that is without end. And as we look at this interpretation of of what the vision is, there has been lots of debate over what this might mean. Uh, There are thousands of possibilities and people who get angry and say, no, what you're saying cannot possibly be. There's there's debates over this. There's a lot of confusion as to what is, is the purpose of this vision that's being told. As we look through it, as we try to figure out what it is, well, at least one part of it's pretty easy. We're told that uh, Daniel turns to Nebuchadnezzar and he says, you King Nebuchadnezzar, who has all your authority and a power from God, he praises God even in the midst of interpreting this dream, you Nebuchadnezzar, you are that golden head. All right, one down, that part's easy. Three to go though. What do we do with the rest of the sections? How are we to understand the rest of these sections? I, I wanna focus on a couple of possibilities. There are some people who say uh, that uh, th- all, this whole vision is about a variety of, of Babylonian kings. So the first 
section that we're told is is Nebuchadnezzar. He is that head of gold. And so the rest of it is going to follow the same suit. It's going to be the, Neb- uh, the Babylonian kings who come after Nebuchadnezzar. People who read it this way see that there's a lot of comfort in this passage for those at the time of Daniel, that they're suffering under Babylon, and this interpretation points to the day that God will rescue them from that place and establish them once again in their land. That's one possibility. Other people see that uh, Nebuchadnezzar just represents all of Babylon, and it talks about these kingdoms that are coming afterwards, and so it's all of the kingdoms that came after Babylon. So this would be Media, Persia, and Greece. Uh, those would be the, the nations that came after them. And so the idea there is that this, uh, this interpretation gives a lot of comfort to Jewish people before the time of Jesus. After Greece, there were all these different nations that came out, and, and the Jewish people suffered horrible atrocities uh, from the nations that came out of Greece. And so this type of reading gives a lot of comfort to Jewish people between the two Testaments, so between the Old Testament and the New Testament. A similar reading of it is, says, yes, these are the nations that come after Babylon, but media was never really a big player at that time. They were really part of the Persian Empire. And so these three other sections would be the medio Persians, Greece, and then Rome. This has been traditionally the, the most popular Christian belief. And it's easy to see why, because we do see God enter into human history in a very visible way during the Roman Empire. This is when Jesus was ministering. This is when he said that the kingdom of God is at hand. This is when he, very fascinatingly, uh, equates himself to a crushing rock in Luke chapter 20, which is interesting. Uh, the, the fourth main way that we're going to, again, we could spend hours just going through here are what different people say. Uh, but the fourth main one that I want to focus on says that these are nations that come after Babylon, but it's not specific nations. The, the idea is that it's pointing towards Jesus' second coming, when, when all things are made new and right. That's, that's what that rock is. And so this tells us about the continuation of evil nations that will exist until God restores and makes all things right. The idea then is that we can all draw comfort from the fact that one day God will establish his kingdom. Now, going through all that, I think there might be two kind of responses in this crowd. There's one that sees us naming a lot of nations. Some of us, some of them we might not have heard of before. What's the median nation? Who are the Medes? Uh, we, we hear about all these details and we wonder, why does it matter? We, it's, it's confusing, it's lost, people debate over it. So, so why are we spending time on it? There's other people in this room who are uh, frustrated at me that we're not spending more time on this that we need to look at these details. We need to figure out what's going on in this passage. We, we need to look at what God might be revealing about the future in this vision. And so I, I just wanna focus on one thing that might act as a little bit of a corrective to, to either of those responses. And it's what is most clear in this passage? What is the clearest piece? What is the whole purpose of the vision? Why, what is it that, that we're supposed to take away from this, even if we can't agree on the details? Well, this is verse 44. It says, and in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It's not gonna get conquered or taken over by others and it shall break into pieces these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. 
Just as you saw that stone that was cut from a mountain by no human hand, and it broke into pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold. A great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. That dream is certain, and its interpretation is sure. Even if we can't agree on what the details are, even if we can't agree about how significant should the details be, this is what we are told is the significance of this vision that's given. God alone is able to set up a kingdom with no end. God alone is able to establish a culture that will not push people away from God or point others or give a pull towards other things in him. God alone can establish a lasting hope and future for all people. God alone alone is able to establish this kingdom that will stand the test of time. God alone will be able to bring to an end those who are in rebellion against him. That, that we can all hold on to this truth that while we might be overly fixating on the details or ignoring them altogether, that we can look at the big exclamation point at the end that there is a great God who is bringing a future or a, and a present for all of his people. And he's told that this interpretation is, is certain and sure because a great God has revealed it which gets us to the last section. It's just the the last few verses, which is praise and promotion. Nebuchadnezzar hears the dream told back to him. He hears the interpretation and his response is praise. Praise for God first. Praise for Daniel as well and giving promotions out to Daniel and his companions. I think it's really interesting about why does, why, does Nebuchadnezzar, why does Nebuchadnezzar react this way? I mean, after all, he was identified as part of that statue that's being destroyed. But nevertheless, he responds with this incredible praise. And I want to focus on that piece. I think that is the through line throughout this entire chapter. While there's super cool, weird, bizarre visions that get all the attention here, while there's drama in the passage as there's death threats being issued, as we have this incredible example from Daniel of standing firm in the face of someone who's issued his death, there's great details, there's, there's great parts of this story. But what I think is the most remarkable is how this entire chapter is drenched in praise for God that all throughout it, every step of the way, that God is being praised. We see Daniel, even in the face of death, respond constantly with praise. Praise for the fact that God is working. Uh, Praise for who God is. Praise in the midst of giving interpretations. Praise right before giving interpretations where he is still not safe. Praise all throughout. Praise God for giving him understanding. I mean, just look at these details that that go on throughout this chapter. Verse 18, he is called the God of heaven. Verse 19, it shows that he is active and working, that God responds to prayer. Verses 20 through 23, there's this whole song of praise for God. It says he's in control of the seasons. He's in control of political rulers. He has all wisdom and might. Verse 28, it says, but there is a God in heaven who reveals and makes known. Verse 44, God himself sets up a kingdom that will last forever. Verse 45, he is a great God whose revelation is certain and sure. Verse 47, the words of Nebuchadnezzar that he is God of gods and Lord of lords. All throughout this chapter, it is the acknowledgement of who God is. By his nature, he is so worthy of praise. It is a chapter drenched in praise. 
And what we learn from Daniel here is that Daniel, in the face of death, praises God. So what is our takeaway from that? It's that we too, in the face of whatever it is that might be in front of us, we too are identified by praising God. That when you look at at where we are, that this culture that we live in, this temptation to turn towards other things, uh, the unknowing how do we navigate between assimilation and separation, how do we live in a place where, where it feels so impossible at times to do all that's called of us, we live lives of praise no matter what it is that we face. And so I wanna end our time on that. What does it look like to live lives of praise? And, and even the idea of why do we live lives of praise? The first thing that I have is we live lives of praise because he is worthy. He is what Nebuchadnezzar says. He is God of God and lords of lords. He is the one and only true God. He is the one who is active and working and living and alive now. He is the one who alone is worthy of our affection. That to direct our praise to anyone else would be a misuse of that praise because no one is worthier than, and more worthy than he. He alone is worthy of our praise. And so we're all praising something. We're all putting our adoration and affection towards something. To direct it away from God is a misuse of that. He alone is worthy. We live lives of praise because he helps us to live our lives. We've talked to how do we live in this culture? How do we navigate the tension between separation and assimilation? It feels so impossible. And you look at this passage where there is an impossible ta- task set before Nebuchadnezzar, no magician can give you what you want to tell you the dream, to tell you the interpretation, the response, but there is a God in heaven. For our lives, no one can give us that perfect life that we're all looking for, the the satisfaction that we're seeking, fulfillment, uh, seeing that there's some significance to our lives. No one, not even ourselves, can create that for us, but there is a God in heaven. No one can remove the hardships that we'll go through to to remove the pains that we will experience, the the hurts that we feel, the uncertainty of life. What is it that I'm supposed to be doing? The confusion that we face, uh, what is right, what is wrong, the hardships that we go through. No one can remove those from us or even give us a way to just hang on, to survive. But there is a God in heaven. No one can help us to navigate the temptations that we feel to assimilate, to just look like the culture around us. That would be the easiest way. Or to separate, to try to create something else, but it always falls short. How do we navigate that tension? Well, there is a God in heaven. No other place can give us lasting, real hope apart from him. No other place can give us something that we can hold on to, something that we're looking forward to. But there is a God in heaven. I like how one of the commentators I read put it, as he was looking at that point, that that we have this lasting hope because of him. He says that if it wasn't for verse 44, the fact that God himself will set up a kingdom with no end, that no matter what culture we find ourselves in, one that that, uh, is, is harmful or has some good in it, no matter what we are feeling, that there are still problems where we are, but God will set up a future place. Uh, God will set up a lasting place. He says that if it wasn't for that truth, I would not have the energy to put one foot in front of the other. That's that idea we may not feel hope anywhere in this world, but there is a God in heaven. 
We live lives of praise because by his nature, he is, in a, he is full of inexhaustible reasons to praise him. And by our nature, we are unable to live as he calls us to live without his help. So we spend our days full of praise for him. Final reason that we have, why do we live lives of praise? Well, it's the series that we're in, that we're calling Winsome Living. Living in this way, I think, is winsome. Having lives that are identified by praising God, I think, helps others to follow God as well. I mean, you see that in the life of Daniel. He could have so easily gone up before Nebuchadnezzar. Do you have the dream? Do you have the interpretation? Sure do. Here's what it is. Yet he pauses and he directs all focus to God. This is who God is. As he's telling the interpretation of this dream, he's telling who God is. A great God has made this known to you. God is establishing this kingdom. He is praising God all throughout. And the end result of it is Nebuchadnezzar praises God as well. And so my my question for us is, is, is this how we respond? Is this how we respond to all that life throws at us? The good and the bad, the monumental and the mundane. As we are experience all that life, no matter what it might be, is our response to praise God, both for our good, because he alone, he alone is worthy, he alone is helping us, but also potentially for the good of others. I can tell you right now that my, my reaction is, is not always to respond in praise for God. I'm more of a cry out to God when I'm desperate and then praise myself when things are going well type of guy. And so it's something that I, I've needed to grow in and continue to need to grow in. Uh, maybe one of the things that I've, I've tried to do, maybe that could be helpful for you. I, I literally have to take times where I stop and I write out reasons why God is so praiseworthy. Uh, what is it about his character? What is it about his nature that is so deserving of praise? What has he done in my life that, that the only possible response to that is to praise him? See, when my, my schedule gets so full, when my head is so full of other things, it becomes less, it's a little bit more difficult for me to easily recall why God is so praiseworthy. And you can see in those moments where, where I'm short with other people, when I'm feeling down, when I'm feeling defeated, when, when I'm overwhelmed by things, my life isn't full of responding in praise to God because I'm, I'm so focused on other things. So I need to take time where I'm literally writing out reasons why God is praiseworthy because it's not coming easy to me. Maybe that's more involved than what we want to do. So just times to think. How, uh, how has God protected you? How has he saved you? What has God done for you in the past year? Or or just go simple. What has God done this past week? Maybe it's still hard to remember. So, So following Daniel's example, bring other people in. How can other people who know you remind you of what God's done in the past so that you can praise God anew for that? Or to spend time in his word where he reveals himself. We pray to him that he would make known more reasons to praise him. Or we put on worship songs, songs of praise, not to fake it till you make it. I don't don't see a lot of value there, but in those moments when we are feeling low, when we are uh, not discovering reasons to praise, we could be propped up by the praise of others. We do it in here sometimes, where some weeks I'm having a hard time praising God, but hearing your guys' voices help prop me up so that I can praise God afresh in this. 
And the idea is that as we, as we develop these habits of praise, there's no other response than these to emerge from our life constantly. That as we're so filled with praise for God, we start to see that praise come out of our lives at all times. There's no other response than for our adoration to constantly be done. And the idea is that this is good for us because God alone is worthy, but there might be an aspect to where other people might see our praise for God in a compelling way. The, the idea is not to be some weirdo that we're always talking about, uh, thanks to God for all things, uh, but, but as people see our genuine expressions of praise to this God, I think it reveals something to them, that this is a God who's real, that this is a God who's active, that this is a God who does work in our day, that this is a God that we can turn to for all things. And so what we see in this life of Daniel as someone who's constantly praising God, that he does so because God alone is worthy, that God is the one who's helping him to live in this way, that, that this is something that God is using to bring Nebuchadnezzar to praise as well, that that is a pattern for us in this. As we develop these lives of praise, we do so in response to this God who is inexhaustibly praiseworthy. We do so because he is constantly helping us to live. And we do so because we are, as praising him, others around us might see and turn to this God for the first time. That he is a God that can be turned to for all things. In hardships in life, in the most dire of circumstances, when we are lost and confused, when we are looking for some sort of hope, we can remember the beauty of verse 28 in this passage. There is a God in heaven.